an appropriate subject for 4th of July. Talk about marriage. <laughs> I got to leave all the like really cool patriotic great history tidbits and I got to leave that to Pastor Bill. He knows that stuff really well. My experience of 4th of July has something to do with sparklers growing up and that kind of thing, but but in all honesty, it's uh, appropriate for us to continue in our discussion on leadership out of 1 Timothy 3, especially as we are. I'm not trying to make a loose stretch here, but it is something that came to my mind is, is the fact that it is appropriate for us to teach on leadership and establishing good leadership in our church, in our homes, and in our country, especially if we are to be patriotic, especially if we are going to appreciate what God has given us uh, as a great nation. And so... Uh, what better place to start than to cleaning up our homes, cleaning up our churches, and cleaning up our communities and workplaces. Uh, I, I'm convinced that one of the big problems that we have in our culture today, this is, again, I am the master of obvious statements. And I love starting with obvious statements because it gives me some buy-in with you. Like, yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. And then I come around the side and I hit you like this and you didn't see it coming. So now I just told you it was coming and element of surprise has been stolen away. So, uh, but, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges we have in America today, that just not even go so far as the politics and all that kind of stuff, we're making this really close to home here. One of the biggest challenges that we have is that we treat one another like possessions. Most of our approach in our relationship has something to do with a selfish bent, something that we're supposed to get out of it, something that you're supposed to provide me. And I know the instant that you've let me down. I, I can see it coming a mile away and I prepare myself for it. I get my argument ready. I get ready to fight. What ends up happening in a culture that's built like that is that we start trading in. We start passing off. We start finding the easier route. And so uh, this is something I think that, that Paul is going to address in this passage to Timothy as he's helping Timothy establish the leadership of the local assembly of the church. I'm reminded as I'm thinking about this, I think back to it's been more than a decade now when those shows started coming out, like the, uh, uh, the Cribs shows that showed all the, like the, the musicians and the actors showing off their houses. Yeah, you guys are like, oh, I've never seen that before. Liars! And, uh, it, and, the, and the interesting thing is that they always have, like, the biggest thing they like to show off is it's, it's two things that you can always see is the fundamental elements in these shows. What's in the fridge and then what's in the driveway. And, um, and if it's an athlete or something, they, they quickly stock it up with all the healthy stuff. So if their coach happened to be watching, it's like, oh, it's just water and papaya. That's really great. Quick, throw the pizza boxes out of the way. But everyone's always got, you know, 10 cars, like one for every day of the week. It's my Monday car, it's my Tuesday car. You know, I don't know what's going to happen Friday, so I need two for Friday. And, uh, and, and you know, and, and, and this isn't, a, this isn't a, a message against possessions or materialism or anything like that, although I'm sure we could make some passing reference to that. But the point is, is that we see the excess of that. And we go, so how much is, is too much? How much is really enough? How much do we really need? And sometimes we don't put ourselves under that same scrutiny, but when we look at it just being flashed right in front of us in this bling and everything, we go, you know, how much do you really need? Well, see, the thing is, is it's obvious when we see that kind of thing playing out. We say, how many cars does somebody need? But when it comes to relationships, we don't really hold people to that same scrutiny. 
how we treat one another like possessions. And I have this friend for over here and I've got this girl for over here and I've got this and everything because it gives me what I need. It keeps my calendar going. Or, and the same thing could be said about how we relate to one another is that we treat people like possessions that are to be shown off in the driveway when somebody's looking. Timothy is being warned by Paul when he says in, uh, in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, it's a trustworthy statement, Timothy. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, this is what we've been talking about now as we're going through Timothy, the, the, the most immediate application of this passage is to the church, and it is in picking leadership for the church, that they are uh, desiring the office or aspiring to the office of an overseer. And I had told you before a couple months ago that I really appreciated that the Bible included that word desire or aspire because it lends us to believe that if you really wanted to do something like that, it's not a bad thing to desire. And it's important for us to distinguish between worldly uh, um, uh, uh, motivations and the things that God has built within the heart of somebody who wants to lead. It's a good thing that you would desire that. It's a fine work that he desires to do. So then he says, now that we've established that it's okay to find somebody who, who is looking forward to that. And, and as a side note, though, the most fun is to find the person that doesn't think they're qualified or ready for that. And we say to them, hey, would you consider joining our team? They're like, really? Me? Are you sure? It's really cool when you run across that because it's like, okay, humility check. <laughs> it's already off the list. It's awesome. But again, the Bible gives us some clarification. It's not wrong to desire that either. So he says an overseer then, here's the characteristics, the qualifications, and we're only going to address the first two so far. The first we've already talked about, it says he must be above reproach. You remember a couple weeks back we talked about a reputation that is clean and, and accusations that can't stick to the character of the individual. So it's kind of like, you know, throwing the spaghetti on the wall. If it sticks, it's ready. And so what we would hope is that the ones that are uh, selected or asked or have joined us in a leadership sense most immediately in the church context is somebody that they're trying to throw that spaghetti on the wall. It's just not sticking because the accusations don't land, partly because that individual is humble about their own sins and shortcomings and says, listen, you just need to know this is what you're getting when you get me. And then that already diffuses a lot of the rumor and the accusations. People say, do you know that person's like this? We could say, yeah, we knew. They actually confessed it to us, and we believe it doesn't hurt their qualifications biblically. So the, ad, the idea, the attitude is that which the person who is being selected or stepping forward for leadership, you might be able to accuse them of things, but those accusations won't stick. He is above reproach. And then secondly, he is the husband of one wife. So this gets to be a bit of a tricky phrase in here. And so that's why we're going to spend our time this morning just dealing with this one phrase. Because it's very easy for us to read into it a cultural interpretation. We are no stranger to the effects of divorce around us. And so we see uh, how it's ravaged the, uh, the culture that we're in. We, we either have experienced it ourselves or somebody in our family, some of our close friends, and we know the difficulty that comes with divorce. And so our immediate application could be, well, this is somebody who can't be divorced then, who's going to be the pastor or the elder. So it's important for us not to read into it too far just based on our cultural background. That's the explanation I always had growing up. I always heard that the reason why a pastor had to only have one wife ever 
and not be remarried after divorce is because of this passage. I can understand where that interpretation comes from, but again, I think it comes mostly from the culture in which we live, not in the historical record of what's being written at the time that Paul is writing this text. If we look closely at it, we're not seeing any uh, disqualification for someone who had been divorced and remarried. The Bible is very clear on divorce and marriage in most instances and and shows uh, very clearly that it's God's heartbeat that none of us ever have to experience divorce. But provisions had been made in the scripture for some divorces. There's nothing in this text to say that that uh, the man of God couldn't have been divorced, but there's certainly enough in other passages of scripture that we would have to balance it and say, now, just because that passage doesn't say you can't be divorced and still be a leader in the church, we have to look at the other factors of divorce against the scriptures to see if whether or not this person went through something that was not God's heart, but was still the acceptable method under the right circumstances or under the wrong circumstances? What was this person's role and participation in the divorce? You know, we have looked and looked and looked as a leadership of this church for a very clear-cut, easy-to-define grid of items that we can go through when you come to us and say, I think I might be experiencing a divorce or I really want out and you just need to tell me if the Bible says it's okay. We've tried to develop as best as we can, okay, if it meets this criteria, and at the end of it, we all kind of looked at each other and said, guys, we're just going to have to deal with some of these things on a case-by-case basis to see what the Scripture says. Because, yes, the Scripture is clear on God's heart of divorce, and he looks out for the victim. But at the same time, there are some gray areas and circumstances that may not really present themselves to us at first. In other words, let me just give you an example. Guy comes to us. This is a fake example, but it seems to fit the pattern. So I'm, I don't have anybody in particular in mind. But a guy comes to the leadership of the church and says, I'm out of here. I can't deal with this woman anymore. And I believe I've got the uh, biblical um, reason to be able to not just walk away from her and to end this marriage, but you can't hold me at fault if I seek to remarry as well. And we start meeting, you know, because obviously that kind of statement comes out of a lot of heartache and a lot of frustration and disappointment and probably a long time of having to deal with this. And so we don't just sit there and go black and white. No, you can't. Bible says no. So we try to deal with what's under the, the surface, what's going on here. And oftentimes what you'll find is that the dismissal of their part in the marriage problems, you know, is so prevalent. They sweep their part under the rug and it's all the other one has offended me. They're uncooperative, they're whatever, and then you find out from the other one there's two sides to the story. And so you can't just make these clear-cut decisions as far as whether or not we would agree with them that the Bible gives them the opportunity, I'll use that word clearly, you know, pointedly, the opportunity to divorce. And so factoring all of those things in, we have to come to uh, what does that do for qualification or disqualifying the potential leader of the assembly. Those things have to be weighed out and stressed through and all that kind of stuff. There is no easy path to it. And the folks or the churches or the leaders that make it sound like it is cut and dry and very clear, um, you know, I, I would be very interested to know why they think that. I've read, I think, you know, not every book, but a ton of books on the position and cannot find where they're getting that hard and fast. What's going on in the culture of Paul's day as he's writing this to Timothy is he's saying, Timothy, don't pick people that are going to lead in your church to have more than one wife at the same time. 
Now, doesn't that seem out of the blue for us? If I'm saying we got to apply the scriptures for today, the truth is relevant. And I say, you know, Paul is saying, Timothy, don't pick leaders that are involved in a, a polygamy relationship where they have multiple wives. We would go, well, OK, so then we can just keep moving on, Brent. Let's not spend any more time about this. It, it doesn't happen much in our culture. I mean, now that we've turned marriage definition upside down in our state, you know, it's only a matter of time before that drum starts to beat and everything. But the reality is, is that we don't really face that a whole lot today, with the exception of maybe some hit TV show, the sister wives thing or whatever that craziness is. Um, what Paul is dealing with with Timothy here is that this guy will be a one woman man. Now, all of a sudden, if I throw that out to you, now we're going, OK, now I can see where this applies to us today, because we have a lot of people that are married to one person, but wouldn't necessarily be considered a one woman man, either by reputation of being flirtatious or affairs on the side and all that kind of stuff. We can see that, OK, if the if the, the spirit of Paul's instruction to Timothy is that this guy is a one woman man, now we can make this applicable for today. Uh, Gene Getz, a writer of a book, um, uh, The Measure of a Man, goes through these characteristics that we're studying together. It's a great companion for what we'll be going through. So if you're ever looking for more information on this topic, The Measure of a Man by Gene Getz, G-E-T-Z, would be the place to go. And he references to this passage, he says, it was very common for the male of that time, and you've got to figure this is a very male-dominated society, it was very common for that male to have three women in his life. Now, I'm going to put my TV warning up in the corner of the screen that says TV 14 at the most I'm going into this morning. OK, but we have this discussion all the time about, well, how much is too much to share behind the pulpit? Is it going to get saucy in here or something? And it's like, please, just in our commercials alone, it's going to get a lot more offensive than anything I'm going to say. So just because I'm going to say the word sex in church this morning, it's just out of familiarity for you. We don't usually hear the word sex under the roof of the church. I'm sick of Satan having all the fun with sex. So we're going to talk about it a little bit. All right. God made it. So we're going to give it back to him. So I should probably mention other than the three freebies you just gave me, I'm probably going to mention that word probably another 10 times this morning. And I'm even including in there references that we all know what I'm talking about. Okay. So what God is saying is, well, actually, let me get back to what Gene Getz said about the, the, men, the women that were available to the men of that day. It was very common for them to have a wife, to seek out a wife. But the other strange thing that was going on in that culture, it was also very common for them to have a young slave girl that would also be available to them with the wife's acknowledgement. I won't even go so far as to say permission. It was with the wife's acknowledgement. And then it gets even weirder because then the temple would often have in their twisted theology would also have temple prostitutes where that was also considered an act and a part of their worship and their religion. Now, we hear men all the time saying, yeah, I understand what you're saying about being a one woman man and stuff, but the temptation is just being thrown at us left and right. It's available. It's free. It's everywhere. And we would all agree that that is absolutely true. I mean, it is very, very apparent that our society has figured out that uh, women are beautiful to men and women. You know, even girls, I see girls in a room go, oh, she is so gorgeous. It's like just very obvious that God made women beautiful. And so they use it and splash it on everything to sell toothpaste, to sell cars, to all that stuff. You know that. 
And so it's very prevalent in our culture. A man could easily say, I'm trying to be a one-woman man, but everywhere I turn, it's always being thrown in my face. Now imagine, though, because then we have a tendency to say, well, see, it was easier back then. But imagine if all of these practices were acceptable. Imagine if your wife understood the nature of your relationship with the slave. Imagine if your wife understood the nature of your temple worship. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes and you're met with the Savior, and he says, I want you to be a one-woman man. I want you to have a pure relationship. I want you to be dialed in and focused on the one that God gave you. And you go, that's a little tough to walk away from, especially when my wife's not even giving me heat about it. Now, think about it. In all seriousness, we judge what we can get away with based on the relationships that are around us and whether or not they're cool with it or they're not. Hey, she's not upset. So we do have a valid point in saying it's very difficult today. But we cannot say it's harder today than it was then. It's just different. So what does it mean to be a one woman man? This is getting more to the problem, the heart of the problem that we have today. He is saying that you would have a heart for only one woman. And I'm using the word heart in the romantic sense. I don't always use it that way, but I'll use it in the romantic sense. So that we understand the nature of the relation is that you are romantically linked to one woman, despite whatever temptations come your way. It's different than what we hear uh, coming uh, from our men today. And, and yes, I am picking on men not to beat them up because I am one, too. I hope I think it's still hard for me to say I'm a man, even though I'm over 40 now. But the reason why I'm picking on men is because the problem of sex and perversion and sin and everything is still most dominantly in the camp of men, although women are trying to catch up for whatever reason. But it is different than what we hear from the modern man that tells his woman, but baby, she doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, you're the one that I love. It was just one night. Lay off it. You're the one I keep coming back to. You're the one that means the most to me. And if you think I'm making this up, it is everywhere. If your heart is for her, you will withstand the pressure to give in to temptation. This is what a, a one woman man does. So it's important for us to distinguish something here. We don't have a ton of time, so it's going to be a little bit of a drive by treatment on this. But uh, there has to be an explanation of the difference between temptation and lust. TV 14 rating comes up on the side of the screen now for you. You've been warned. Get your children out of the room. And my wife said I can't embarrass her, but she's not in this service. She'll be in the next service. So I got to get all my embarrassing comments out now, and then I'm going to really babysit myself in the second service. And by the way, this would be like even more uncomfortable if you and your wife or your husband were sitting in my counseling office. So just saying. Like I said, belongs to the Lord. I have no problem. All right. The difference between temptation and lust, I'm going to try to put it as succinctly as I can. Temptation occurs in the area of something that you are already geared towards liking. Temptation is something in a sense that you could even be an innocent bystander and receive. We know from the scriptures that Jesus was tempted in all points in the same way that you and I were. 
I'm not going to go through all the theology of that and what the difference was. And does that mean he really you know, wanted to sin, but he didn't or any of those sorts of things? What we're going to do is we're going to keep the definition of temptation simple, that because of the way you were created, there are certain things that are just interesting to you, attractive to you or whatever. And that is the area that temptation is going to slide into in order to tempt you. So I always use food as my safe example here, since I don't want to keep overusing the S word and use up my limit that I can share this morning. So if I say out of my own commitment or whatever, I'm trying to stay away. I've had an ice cream sundae three nights last week. I just don't want to have any more for one straight week. That's all I want. Just to be able to say I've done it. So I'm going to go a straight week without an ice cream sundae. I go out to dinner with some friends. We're sitting at the table. And then somebody thinks they're going to be funny because they know how much I love them. And they have the waitress bring an ice cream sundae and plop it right down on the table in front of me. Temptation has just entered the building. Okay? Temptation is saying, look, you were created. And I'm, I'm being serious when I dial it back this far. You were created to desire food. Now, I want you to make the cross applications to all areas of temptation. You were created to desire food. It's, it's part of how God made you. You love food. It wasn't just for nourishment or else everything would be bland. But he likes you to enjoy the taste of food, to experience the variety of food, all those things. And then so somebody puts down something that has to just, happens to just be amazingly good and plops it right down in front of you. And you've experienced it before. You're like, this is great. Now, that is temptation because you're going, I already said I wasn't going to do this. Uh, waitress, I, I understand the gesture. Thanks, guys. Real funny. Okay, please take it away. That is going through the mode of temptation without sinning. That isn't lust. We have a tendency to link those two things together because it looked good. It's something I love. I love ice cream. So I am in, immediately slap myself on the wrist and be like, you lustful sicko. <clears throat> and it's part of the process. God made me that way to like ice cream sundaes. Now, <clears throat> here's where we get into trouble. I tell the waitress to take it away. And then I start thinking to myself, I know I made a commitment. They all heard me say it. So if I caved now, it would just look awful. And so you got the whole peer pressure thing keeping me pure. But then in my mind, I go, you know, there's that convenience store on the way home. <laughs> And I hope I have the strength to keep driving by it. <clears throat> but I noticed last week when I was in there, they had extra stock going up of the, uh, the kind that I like. And you see what my mind is doing is I'm rehearsing my pattern to sin. I'm thinking about how am I going to probably fall in the area of temptation. That mental process that's going on in those few split seconds is what the Bible would refer to as lust. When it comes to physical attraction and sexual temptation and those kinds of things, uh, I had somebody explain it to me this way. I think it's a very helpful um, explanation. Uh, temptation, I'm speaking to the men here. Temptation is when you come to the stoplight or the walkway or something, beautiful girl walks in front and your brain instantly goes, wow, beautiful woman. See, my wife and I have had these conversations before and I said, I want my brain to still do that. And it's not because I want to check out all those girls because I still want to look at her and go, wow, beautiful woman. So I don't want that portion of my brain to shut down. You see what I mean? So temptation comes across, walks around, and I say, wow, beautiful woman. Lust is, I think I should go around the block and see if I can get another look. I love that you guys are laughing and not going, oh, this hurts so painful. 
or adjusting the rearview mirrors or whatever tricks we can come up with. Do you see the difference? Temptation is sometimes a very passive. I didn't go out of my way for this trouble. And please don't fault me for the fact that this is interesting or attractive to me the way I'm built and wired. But I have every responsibility to keep my mind and my eyes pure and to stay on track with what God has called me to do. And he's given me the resources and faculties to do that. This is the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about being a one-woman man. He, I'm going to use a word here the ladies are going to hate. It's not a bad word, but in this context it can be. The man of God, the man who's going to be God's leader, disciplines himself. That's the word you're not going to like, ladies. Disciplines himself to stay pure and faithful. Why would you hate that word? Now, I'm generalizing. You may not hate that word, but... It's because every romantic comedy and romance movie has told you that if you're the right woman for this guy, he won't even be interested in anything else that walks by. So I told you we were going TV 14 on this, right? So I want to talk about this subject like adults. Because we have to understand that there is a difference between temptation and lust. And the more we understand that difference, the more we can help the men of our society be one woman men. If this were flipped the other way and it just seemed like women were just so interested in wandering and losing control, and it happens. Women are not 100% interested, but we all know that in our society especially, but even beyond, even in Paul's day, the interest was to be more available and have things more available to the man. He disciplines himself to stay pure and faithful. And that discipline is something that comes with the territory. It has to. Men have their own responsibility to be one woman men. This isn't the thing that you're just either born with or you aren't. And man's responsibility, I'm going to lay out a few of them here on this subject, okay? So it says, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to read here just for my notes. The, the first man's, men's responsibility we have is to value his connection to his wife even more than that intense drive that God wired him to have. Nothing wrong with that intense drive. But the man of God needs to discipline himself to say, as much as I feel wired in that way, I should value the connection I have with my wife even more than what I uh, go and seek in that, in that drive. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 read this way. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. I believe one of the great faults that men of our society have experienced and have perpetrated is the fact that we often see women as possessions to use for our pleasures rather than a partnership and a connection that other great things flow out of. We are to be about building a partnership where sexual attraction and that fulfillment that comes with it flows out of the connection, the relationship I have with who belongs to me. Yes, like a possession because the Lord gave her to me, but because I honor it and I cherish it. Now, I know what's going through some people's minds right now. Some people are thinking the dudes are thinking sounds good on paper, Brent. I can't imagine that you live like this all the time. You'd be absolutely correct. I preach to myself this morning, but I do also stand before you as someone who's had to learn this lesson the difficult way. 
Even in the very first year of my marriage to my wife, my head was all upside down and I thought she existed just for me. And that elderly gentleman sitting right over there, he and his wife walked us through a very painstaking process to see that we were to live for each other. And things have gotten a lot better since then, but I still need these lessons every single day. I also know what ladies are thinking right now. Ladies are thinking, oh, if my husband could just share some of the thoughts that Pastor Brent's sharing right now, my life would be perfect. It wouldn't be. It won't be. And it's easy to say on paper. All of us, if you saw behind the scenes in my house, you'd be like, what a dog, what a slug. Trust me. We build a partnership where the good things that we do want, because the way we're wired, come out of it in the right order. This is going to be counter to your flesh. This is going to go against the way your sinful flesh, uh, before it was was, uh, raptured, before it was arrested by God's love, your sinful flesh is going to use those excuses. Hey, look, he just wired me to have a real strong drive here, so I can't help it. I hear that over and over and over again. I can't keep my own eyes in my head because, hey, I'm just interested. And the Lord made me that way. I'm just overly sensitive to it. That's not true. It just means you've got a a bigger uh, hill to climb. It's going to be counter to your culture. Women are all over the place going, ah, men are dogs. They can't help it. And they they make all these concessions because, hey, what are you going to do? You can't change a man. This is who he is, what you deal with. And from a man's perspective, we hear it all the time. Well, marriage is too restrictive. Hey, hey, baby, I got too much love for just one woman. It's everywhere. This is going to be against our flesh. It's going to be against our culture. We need to begin to view physical intimacy as a giving process and not a getting process. We are, we are to not use any instances of disrespect that we receive. Well, she's being cold to me or she's not treating me with respect or, or any of those things. We can't use those as excuses to sin. A woman has the responsibility to try to understand this differentiation between temptation and lust and not hold a man at fault just because he's built and wired differently and he's so easy to separate sex from relationship. It's just this really dumb ability that we have. And, and a man needs assistance and help from a caring wife to, to bridge those two together. Not just accept that as a premise, but say, I'm not going to fault him that he might be wired that way, but God has more for us. And so I'm going to help him see the connection between our physical intimacy and the relationship that we're supposed to have. It's an assistance. It's a help. It's what God put you in that marriage for is to assist and to help and to guide and to counsel. Women also have the responsibility to not make everything about physical intimacy, about their need for closeness, to not be possessive about it, to not use it as a weapon in marriage negotiation. If you say the wrong thing to me, it's going to be cold in this house. It doesn't help the situation. It causes a sinful man to go off and make stupid excuses. Don't add fuel to the fire. Let's try to wrap this up quickly. As fun as this is, I know I've got everyone's attention. It's like the drop of a pin. You can hear it. What's behind the requirement to being a one-woman man? Let's get off the sex talk and figure out why this would be so important to the Lord. It hits the pride of the situation. The same guy that would just be pointing out all the cars in the driveway is all about, look what I can afford. 
That's what it, that's what it's about when he's showing it off to those regards. Uh, if you have more than one car, or two cars, no magic formula. I'm not pointing that out. I'm talking about the people that are out there flaunting it. But if you have an extra car and you're not using it, <laughs> twelve passenger, right? Yep. <clears throat> this requirement hits the pride of the situation. Look how many cars I can afford. It also tackles the lust that is in our hearts because it goes against the guy who says, I know I already have plenty of cars, but this one's awesome. I know I said I had enough last week, but man, I didn't know this one was coming. It also confronts cowards. The people that don't have to get too close because they spread themselves thin. I keep all the people happy in my life. I just keep them at a distance. What they don't know won't hurt them. Cowardice. And it's the lie of sexual sin that we can have fun in whatever way presents itself to us without costing us. What sexual sin is promising is only a mirage. It's saying you can have a form of intimacy and your heart won't hurt if you don't get it. It's lying to you. Culture is lying to you. We were built for intimacy. Guys are going, I'm not sure that that's really the case, but trust me, it is. We were built for intimacy. And every other thing that falls outside of God's realm for that intimacy is a mirage. And it's only going to break your heart. It's only going to demoralize you. It's going to embarrass you and shame you. We all love the falling in love part. When we first meet each other, when we get romantic and all those kinds of things. That's the easy part. And if we're not careful, that becomes addicting. But God doesn't have that for the man who's going to be the leader in his church. And he certainly doesn't have it for the man who doesn't want to be a leader in church, but should be in his home. He has it also for the, uh, for the, for the man who's going to be a leader in his community. And he, yes, ladies, I would include you in this instruction as well, because we all love the romance part. Guys aren't into the big flowers and chocolate, but man, meeting the new girl. And hearing those first words of respect and, oh, he's so great and awesome and everything. And we're like, wow, it's been years since I've heard anything like that. So why is marital infidelity, whether it's culturally acceptable back then or forms of it are acceptable today or not, what is, why is marital infidelity incompatible with God's plan for his church? It's lazy for us to say, well, because he doesn't like it, so we can't do it. Instead, we have to look back as what I've been saying the last couple of messages that God reveals his heart and his character in his requirements for mankind. He's telling us something. If ever you're in doubt about what marriage should look like, go back to the picture that he gave us throughout the scriptures. But even more pointedly in Ephesians five, where he says marriage is the picture of God's love for his bride, who is the church. And if we start thinking about what's wrong with polygamy and everything, you just play out that scenario and you say, well, how would that fit in that picture? That the Bible doesn't say he had multiple brides. Yes, you and I are multiple individuals, but it says the church who falls under the same banner and same doctrine and instruction is his singular bride. And for us to be able to say, well, then it's okay also to have a wandering mind, wandering eye set would also put that same blame on Jesus Christ. To say, well, he can start looking outside of the faith of Christians and says, I'm just I'm happy with them today. I really like what they're doing with their sacrifice instead. And I think what they're doing over there. Instead, he keeps it uniform. He keeps it locked in. He has one bride. He stays committed and faithful to his bride, who is the church of Jesus Christ. So when in doubt, always go back to the picture that he's given us of what marriage is. Also, what's really healthy for us 
to have our leadership have these strong marriages is because discipline in marriage builds character, which strengthens our ability to lead. You see, the faithfulness to your wife or your husband is going to go hand in hand with your effectiveness around. Don't we, don't we find it strange in that even in a culture where these kinds of things are expected and people aren't really expected to be always faithful to their spouse, whenever we hear that someone has fallen, even though they're not church leaders, we go, I don't know, it just taints their reputation to me. How can I trust them? I think of Joseph's example when he was given all the, the freedom in Potiphar's house, who was basically the governor of the time, and he was given all this responsibility. And Potiphar's wife really was into Joseph. She really loved him and kind of wanted to you know, snatch him. TV 14 rating for a rendezvous. And Joseph basically had to tear himself away from her. That's how aggressive she was. So, so much so that he had to leave his coat behind. But he told her, he resisted to her initially by saying, how could I, your, your husband's given me freedom and responsibility over everything in this house except for you. How could I do this thing and sin against your husband? No. How could I do this thing and sin against my God? I will not have you because my God hasn't permitted it. And he breaks away. He couldn't sin against God. That's the integrity that you want to see in your leadership. Greater spousal intimacy is another reason why God would probably require this for his leaders. Because when you are intimate with your spouse, both in conversation and all those things, you get better counsel for the difficulties and the burdens that you carry as you minister to the needs of the, of the flock. And just, as a side note, I just think that's one of the major reasons why Pastor Bill's done what he does for a couple of decades. If you've ever witnessed the relationship he has with Barb, you go, oh, I get it. And that's a great thing. A good leader has bigger goals than just cheap pleasure. If your leader is just constantly stumbling and falling into cheap thrills and cheap pleasure and trying to think there's no consequence to it, then he set his expectations and his goals too low. And it makes it extremely difficult. Not only is it sinful, it makes it extremely difficult for you to follow. I love C.S. Lewis's quote, and we'll end with this. Dealing with this idea of what we set our sights on and what we're willing to expect. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Think of that excuse. Well, I just have too strong a desire in this area. This is why I keep falling. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. The leaders that we want to establish in our church, the ones we want to pray the Lord continues to send us, are ones that would say, I understand why that would be pleasurable to me. I understand why it's a temptation and it's in my realm that way. But my goal is for something so much more satisfying than what this thing is lying to me about. I'm willing to forego it and overlook it in order to have the greater reward. The Lord is looking for leaders who are able to abandon, hear my words carefully, an earthly, fleshly pursuit of fulfillment. It doesn't mean they can't enjoy the things of this earth, but their earthly ambition and focus is on something so much greater than it provides. And while temptation is common to all of us, God is looking to lead people down the uncommon path of faithfulness and solidarity in the area of personal relationships. A strong, vibrant marriage is a blessing to God's leader and it's the testing ground for so many characteristics needed in order to lead well. And the church in 2014 should be about strengthening marriage bonds 
in clarifying godly roles in order to ensure our ability to stay strong for years to come. So that's why we parked on that passage of Scripture this morning. Would you please stand as we pray for the Lord to lead us in these things? Our Lord God, we want to thank you, Father, for what you've accomplished here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for hearing the prayers of your people on behalf of the so many needs that we have here. Pray to keep us faithful to your word. Keep us faithful to each other. Help us, Lord, to see your provisions and your calling for us as the thing that is ultimately going to provide our happiness. And Lord, arrest us with your truth so that we'd be locked in and committed to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.